Let's start with prayer before we jump into this whole chapter four thing, this next vision. Um, so let's, let's open with prayer. Father God, <clears throat> I know many of us have had uh, long weeks this week. For some, it was just the normal pressures and stresses of life. For others, I know it involved dealing with, uh, with illness or, or surgery, even death, and some people I've talked with this week. Um, but we are grateful that we can come before you this morning, trusting in your sovereignty, knowing that you have a, a plan in place for all of creation, not just our little piece of it. Um, and I pray that that gives us some, some comfort and rest. And I ask that you would direct this morning, direct our hearts towards you, Fill us with your spirit to bring peace, uh, renewal, joy, even in difficult circumstances. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you'd forgive our self-centeredness. Uh, forgive us the times that we forget about you and we try to do things on our own. And then we become aware of it and realize how amazing it is that you never forget us, even though we often forget you. So we give you praise and we, we give you honor for your your ways are righteous and true. We, we worship you for the fact that you are a holy and just God. <clears throat> and we declare that your love stands firm forever. Your loving kindness endures forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I talked to Aaron Phillips just a couple days ago, and he said surgery went great uh, on Oliver. Um, the surgeon thought it went as well as it could go. Um, he's going to have a little baby cast from about chest down for uh, three months or so, and then they expect he'll be completely normal after that. Long three months, but pretty good after that. Um, so we're grateful for that. So we are at a transition point this morning uh, in our journey through the book of Revelation. We've covered the first three chapters, which you all know. I'm sure you've memorized those by now. Uh, it included the seven letters to the seven churches, and it all started with John having received a vision. Um, what turned into a series of visions, I don't think he knew that at the time, but John had a vision while he was banished on the island of Patmos, and, and he was instructed to write these seven very specific letters to these seven very specific churches. Now, we have said, Al and I, Randy, um, that historically, or at least in our more modern church history, the tendency has been for modern churches to marginalize, even kind of minimize these first three chapters in Revelation. Uh, they prefer to get to, you know, the real meat of the book, the good weird stuff later on. Uh, our contention, and this is not unique to us, it's just kind of been overlooked on a broad scale, our contention has been that these letters to the churches are the real meat of the entire book of Revelation. And, and what is the meat? What is the core message consistent throughout these letters? The message was, worship God. Actually, it was, continue to worship God. Continue to serve Jesus. Continue to hold fast to your faith. Continue to walk worthy of your calling. Persevere. Endure the trials. Uh, the, the tribulations that have existed for that first church, that will exist for this church, and have existed for every church in between. Persevere. Endure. Conquer the world through your faithful exercise of obedience to Christ in all things. It's a simple message. That's all we have to do. It's all, this letter is all about encouraging the faithful to remain faithful in spite of present circumstances, in spite of the sad state of current affairs, 
in spite of trial and tribulation and torture and even death, persevere. Conquer. That word was in every letter. Conquer. Well, then the book of Revelation shifts gears, and John has another vision, which we're going to look at this morning. He has a vision of the throne room. Um, So there's two chapters of this descriptive narrative about what John sees. And then we transition again to chapter 6, you know, where we get into seals and trumpets and bowls and dragons and harlots and all kinds of weird stuff. And then the last two chapters describe the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. So at first reading, or second, or third, or eleventh, we read through this, and it seems kind of disjointed. It seems disconnected, almost. It's, it's almost more like it's an anthology of short stories than a cohesive narrative. So before we jump into chapter 4 here, I'm going I'm to try to lay out, I think what we see is kind of the big storyline involved. Maybe this will help, I hope. Um, this is how we're kind of approaching this book. First three chapters are the messages to the seven churches. And now we're going to look at these next two weeks, chapters 4 and 5, this vision of heaven and the throne room. And then we're going to get to the section, that 6 through 20 section, that's caused so much consternation and so much misunderstanding and so much wild speculation over the years. And then finally, we're going to see the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, it looks kind of disconnected, very different kind of topics and and information. But here's the arc of the story. The letters to the churches, call us to remain faithful, to persevere in spite of trial and tribulation and persecution, and to worship God. And we can worship God in spite of circumstances because God is in charge of all circumstances. He is sovereign. He alone is worthy of worship. That's what we're shown in these next two chapters. We're given this picture of who God is and how he sits in control of everything. So we're called to worship God, and now we're shown, and this is the God we're talking about. And then we're shown kind of what's happening behind the scene. Here are the circumstances we're we're supposed to worship God in spite of. Here's all this going on behind the scene. All of the spiritual battle stuff, Satan versus God, all of the stuff that bleeds over into our daily existence. The bowls and the the trumpets, we can almost look at those as like tactics in the warfare. So we are in the middle of spiritual warfare, and the devil seeks to conquer the church. He seeks to spite God in whatever opportunity he he has. But in the end, chapters 21 and 22, in the end, we're shown that the sovereign God proves victorious. His eternal plan is, is completed. So when we faithfully continue to worship Jesus, even if we lose in this life by the world standards, we win. Even if we die here for the cause of Christ, we live forever with him. That's how the story ends. You see how that starts to connect now? It starts to make sense. You know, what I find interesting is Maybe I've been more aware of this than you have, but it seems to me over the last couple of years, especially at the increase of all the social justice issues, we keep being told over and over and over that if we don't adopt, if we don't adopt this cause or that cause, if we don't support this, this position or that position on this cultural issue, then we're going to be on the wrong side of history. 
The grand purpose of Revelation is to show us what is the right side and wrong side of history. All history. Not our myopic sense of contemporary social justice, not some arbitrary relativistic cultural norm of right and wrong, but if there's a God who created all things and who sits on this majestic throne, as we're going to see this morning, and if this same God says, I am the standard of truth and morality, then anything that opposes him or his will is inherently wrong and on the wrong side of history. Therefore, those who follow God, those who obey his rules, those who try to follow his teachings on on values and morality and worship, then they, we, will be on the right side of history. No matter how it may look to us today by modern standards, we see how history plays out here. So the book of Revelation just peels back this curtain of history just, just a wee bit shows us that there is a God who created all things, a God who has this incredible plan for all of history, who controls the flow of events from the major broad strokes of world affairs that we're seeing played out right now to the minutest details of our daily lives. He is the Alpha and Omega. And he alone is worthy of worship. So these first seven letters, they call us to live faithfully. They call us to live courageously even though it may seem like, even though it may look like that the world is beyond hope or out of control. God is in control. He has his limits established. He has his parameters on exactly what he's going to allow and how long he's going to allow it. So what looks like chaos to us is really God graciously allowing time for unbelievers to wake up, to repent, So now chapters 4 through 21 start to give us a glimpse of these events, of all this activity that's that's taking place beyond us. We don't see, we certainly don't understand these backstage activities that, that God has carefully orchestrated and he is capably directing. We've been called to persevere. So don't give up. Regardless of how dark and evil things look or how dark and evil things may become, Stand firm, because God is on his throne, which is what we'll look at this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So the first thing I have to point out here is it starts with, after this I looked. We're going to see this phrase, after this, several times throughout the book of Revelation. Um, and so we, first here, we, we start off by asking, well, after this, after what? After, after what? So we look back into the previous chapters, and we recognize that the last few verses in chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and all of chapter 3 are all connected to that first vision that John had. That vision of Jesus. He was standing there, remember, around the lamps, in the, in the middle of the lampstands with, with stars in his hands. And in that vision, Jesus told John, write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, we don't know exactly when John wrote the letters in terms of when he had this vision. Did, John, did this vision end and John sat down and wrote the seven letters? Or did he have all of these visions kind of in a row and then he went back and did? We don't really, we don't really know. And it doesn't really matter. 
Except that we need to be careful to understand what after this means in context. So when we read this first after this in our text, the references of the fact that this is the next vision in a series of visions. He had the first vision. After this, he had another vision. So it's talking about the series, the sequence of visions, not what was contained in the visions. This is where things can get confusing. If we read all of the after this as things that happen in order, it gets really confusing. And it really doesn't make sense to read it that way. So when we, when we see this first after this, we need, we need to be aware of the fact that this is the next in a vision, not the next thing that happens chronologically. It can be confusing. If I were to tell you last night that I had a dream-plagued night of sleep, and I had a vision where I died and nobody came to my funeral, not unexpected, but sad still. <laughs> but then after this, I had this vision where somehow I was in the hospital room and I watched my own birth. And then I watched my parents and the doctors drawing straws to see who's going to have to take me home. <laughs> now, you would understand that when I said, after this, I was talking about the first vision and then the second vision. Not the sequence of events, because I can't die before I was born. Right? That's the same kind of thing we're looking at here. So we'll pay careful attention to this as we go through. It's not necessarily the chronology of events, but this is the sequence of visions. So the first thing John sees in this new vision is a door standing open in heaven. Now this is surely an indication of welcome to all who choose to enter. Jesus said, I am the door, and he is open. Right? He, he, is, he is the way to God. He is the way to heaven. He is welcoming. But he's especially welcome, welcoming to John at this moment. And then John hears a voice like a trumpet. Back in chapter 1, it says John was in the Spirit. He heard a voice like a trumpet, and he turned and saw Jesus. So here when he says he hears a voice like a trumpet, we automatically connect. This is another vision from Jesus. Jesus says, come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. Now we're getting into the events. Some translations say, after these things. I think they're just trying to make it clearer. Um, so that you see the difference between the series of visions and events. So this, after this, in context, refers to those events that are about to be described. And notice it doesn't say, again, this is where it get, can be confusing by some, or has been confused by some. It doesn't say, the events that will take place in the next 10 years, the events that will take place in the next 1,000 years, the events for the next dispensation. This is a wide open after this. this is, these are the events that are going to take place into the future until Jesus comes back. John is in the Spirit, he says. So again, an, an indication that this is a vision from God himself. He's been commissioned for this task to deliver this message. So John has this vision. He sees this door open, and he's immediately aware that someone is seated on the throne. Now, what follows, remember, is a vision. So the description of what John sees is symbolic to a degree. He uses simile to help us understand what it is he's seeing. Because what he is seeing is this otherworldly, supernatural, beyond this natural world kind of, kind of vision. And John struggles to describe what it is he's seeing. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So, again, he's, he's trying to find a way to understand what he sees in natural terms, words that we understand. And so he says, he had the appearance of. It was kind of like this. How do you describe God on the throne? What, what is essentially indescribable? John, John's given this glimpse, the, this presence of the glory of God, and he just ain't got the words to describe it. We see similar examples in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 when they had visions. They struggled to describe what they had seen. And in Ezekiel's account especially, he also uses the phrase, the appearance of, several times. So what John describes here is the appearance of, he basically describes colors. His impression of what he is saying. And he describes it in terms of, of colors associated with these stones. Carnelian and, and jasper and emerald. A rainbow. Around the throne was a rainbow. I mean, that's certainly a, a symbol, a sign of the promise that judgment has come to an end. That for the children of God, the storm will be over. This is, I think, for John, an overwhelming visual assault on the senses. The best he can do is kind of describe it in terms of colors. You remember when Moses was in the presence of God? He's standing on on holy ground, and he saw this bush that appeared to be on fire. It wasn't on fire. It had the colors of fire, but it wasn't a fire. When Moses had his encounter on Mount Sinai with the Lord, he came down and his face was shining. He was reflecting the glory. It was almost like a polished stone. People asked him to cover his face because it freaked him out. John gives us no physical attributes of the one on the throne. Now, had he said, the one on the throne, man, he just had this presence about him, you know, long silver hair and this long gray beard, and he had this cool staff, we'd go... That's exactly what we thought. But instead, we just get this sensory impression. He had the appearance of this. This had to be overwhelming. But not just that. Around him, around the big throne, are these 24 smaller thrones. And seated on those 24 thrones were 24 elders clothed in white with golden crowns on their heads. Notice John has no trouble describing these guys. They're not God. So he gives us a description of them. But who are they? It's not really made clear. But since this is a vision, there's perhaps some symbolic component to this. We we can posit maybe a few suggestions. Some suggest that these 24 elders are really uh, representative of the old order of Old Testament priests. Uh, In in 1 Chronicles, David organized the Aaronic priests into 24 divisions. Well, there you go. 24 thrones, 24 elders, 24 Old Testament priests. That is thematically and mathematically correct, but it doesn't quite seem to work. 
it seems incomplete. If, if worship in heaven is to be reflected in worship on earth, then what about all those Jesus followers? What about all those God believers who came after the order of Aaronic priests? How come they're not included? So another suggestion, and I'm more inclined to agree with this one, the best solution to who are these 24 is to consider that the number 12 represents both the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So now we have 24 that spans faith in God from Old Testament to New Testament and beyond. This seems more consistent with the idea of universal heavenly worship. And the appearance and description of the 24 is also pretty interesting, I think. John says there are 24 elders on thrones, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. If you think back through all those letters we just read, the letters to the churches, the letter to Smyrna said, if you, if you guys remain faithful, if you're faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Here's 24 guys wearing crowns. To the church in Thyatira, it said, to the one who conquers, I'll give him authority over the nations. He'll rule with a rod of iron. Here are 24 guys sitting on thrones, seated around the big throne. They're ruling. The church in Sardis, we're told, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Here are white garments. The church in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. So what John is seeing here, I think, is, is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to the saints throughout time. God is faithful and just. He keeps his promises. Those who conquer will be rewarded. So just as the the rainbow is a a reminder that God keeps his promises, the description of the 24 reminds us that God keeps his promises. So John takes all of this in, and now he's even more overwhelmed. He's over-overwhelmed. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and not unlike the train. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. We're going to see or read about this imagery several more times throughout the book of Revelation, this idea of lightning and thunder and rumblings. It just couldn't be more timely. These all speak to the presence of God. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, the people below heard thunder, and they saw lightning, and they were terrified. They, they, they knew that God was up there with Moses. And we're told here that around the throne are these seven torches of fire, and we're not left to guess what those mean. We're told. These are the seven spirits of God. So this is conveying for us the the power of the Holy Spirit. Seven's complete, full, right? This is the full power of the Holy Spirit gathered here at the throne. One commentator I read suggested that the torches represent the all-consuming power of the Holy Spirit. Seven for fullness, for completeness. And so before the throne is this all-consuming power, which may well symbolize judgment for the wicked on one hand, but also sanctifying power for the righteous. Because fire destroys, but it also cleanses and purifies. Again, John is taking all of this in. This is a a great, amazing image for John to take in. 
And before the throne, then he says, for lack of a better description, maybe John says there is like this sea of glass, like crystal. And as unusual as that imagery is, maybe it's, it's very consistent in Scripture also. In Exodus 24, Moses and Aaron and, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Ezekiel 1, his image says, his vision says, over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. Seems to be very similar descriptions of the same thing. A sea so smooth it was like glass. It's almost like this, uh, maybe a metaphoric ceiling of earth and floor of heaven, you know, I think is how, how we kind of picture it. And when we think of a, you know, still perfectly smooth body of water, for example, we think of calm and peace, absence of turbulence, no turmoil, no chaos, smooth sailing, the pain and trouble and worries of this life. Do not reach that shore. All of earth's problems are gone, standing in the presence of Almighty God. Amazing. And there's more. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So John is going down this list of of things he observes, and this is the next thing he sees. I mean, this is a very unusual, very dramatic description of what John sees here. And I just don't think we can imagine taking this all in, what that must have have been like, even in form of a vision. I mean, seeing God on the throne, or at least sensing God on the throne, the throne encircled by 24 men with shining white robes and golden crowns and, and, and all of these colors and, and the brightness and, and the glory and the, the whole scene is so incredible, the sea of crystal like glass. And, and it's also amazing that as odd as these creatures are, they're not even the first thing John notices. This is like the fourth thing he describes in the list here. Oh, this is all amazing. And then there are these other really weird things. These four creatures positioned so as to kind of surround the throne, essentially. The first creature, he says, is like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third, like a man. And the fourth, like an eagle. Again, use of simile here, right? It wasn't exactly a man. It wasn't exactly an ox. But there are enough of those characteristics to help John describe them that way. Because we all know, I mean, we're pretty sure anyway, ox don't have wings. Man doesn't have wings. Okay, an eagle's got wings, but the others don't have wings. So it was like a lion, like an ox, like a man. Again, he's struggling to use the natural world to describe what is altogether supernatural. And, and, oh, and by the way, not only is an ox with wings, but he's covered in eyes. 
I, I just don't think we can imagine the, the, the sense of awe and wonder that, that John must have, expel, must have felt during this. As amazing as this scene is, again, this is consistent with Scripture. We've kind of seen this before. We, we've read about it. Isaiah and Ezekiel both had similar visions. Isaiah 6.2 says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his, fe- his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Ezekiel's vision, he says, as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left, and the four had the face of an eagle. Same faces. Now Isaiah specifically refers to the creatures he sees as seraphim. This is the only place that seraphim are mentioned in all of Scripture. What Ezekiel describes are more often referred to as cherubim. Both are created beings. Both are angels of kind of the highest created order. The main difference, as far as we can tell, because we don't really know, seraphim has six wings and cherubim have four. There's probably more to it than that, but how much attention could John pay to detail, really? So what John sees here is almost like something of a hybrid of the two. They have these cherubim characteristics, but they also have six wings, like a seraphim. Now, what's their purpose? Why are they there? Well, it seems like their purpose throughout Scripture, their purpose is to carry out God's purpose. In Genesis, after God evicted Adam and Eve, he positioned cherubim at the entrance to protect the tree of life. The Israelites were instructed to create likenesses of cherubim to be placed on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, to be placed in the Holy of Holies. So some people see them kind of uh, portrayed as God's throne bearers. They are, they, they are protectors of his holiness. They carry out God's purpose. And here in Revelation 4, it seems like one of their main purposes is to day and night worship God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. <clears throat> Again, trying to take in all of this extraordinary scene, sensory overload for John. He's in the presence of God that, that, that leads to this amazing worship of God. And, and, and while the four living creatures are saying, holy, 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 and they never cease to say it or I think probably sing it, The next verse says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I found that phrasing kind of interesting. You know, it says, so whenever the living creatures were doing their holy, holy, holy part, then the elders would fall down before him who's seated on the throne. They'd, they'd cast their crowns before the throne, show of respect, you know, obedience. And then they start with, worthy are you. But they only do it whenever the angels are singing holy, holy, holy. And one of the angels singing, holy, 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 they never stop. So there's this constant, constant scene of praise and worship. So the the cherubim, the seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy. The 24 elders are saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God. If John is not feeling completely gobsmacked by this point, 
I mean, I, it's just hard to fathom the colors, the, 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 the glory of God's presence, the supernatural, otherworldly creatures, and now there's this oral audio component to it as well. A, a cacophonous, unending stream of melodic, harmonious, glorious praise and worship. All directed at the physically undescribed, yet altogether magnificent presence seated on the throne. So, if these exalted elders seating in the throne room, if these highest order of angels, if even they acknowledge the absolute authority and sovereignty of Almighty God, who who deserves glory and honor and thanks forever and ever, they never cease to worship him. If these exalted beings, knowing what they know, knowing far more about the big picture than we do, If they feel compelled to prostrate themselves and bow down in absolute submission, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Let's go back to bigger picture context here. Let's go back to the big storyline. Remember after the church in Ephesus, he told them, recapture your first love, repent and do what you've been called to do. Conquer and I will grant you access to the tree of life. And here, in this same book, they see this scene of cherubim, the guardians of the tree of life, obeying and worshiping God. So the Ephesians knew that their promise of eternal life could be and would be fulfilled by God. The church in Smyrna were told, You're going to face tribulation. That's the good news. You're going to face tribulation. Some of you could die as a result. But don't fear what you're about to suffer. And they were told, conquer, and you will not be hurt by the second death. And here we have this scene of eternal praise and worship for a God who lives forever and ever. They say that twice. Forever and ever. Who's promised us an eternity with him. So whatever fear they might have had of, of second death, This helps eliminate that, or at least mitigate it to some degree. This is the reward they have coming. Thyatira read, hold fast and I'll give you authority over the nations. You'll you'll rule with rods of iron. And here they see the God of all authority who's got 24 elders seated around him. Men who've been given authority over the nations. The promise that Thyatira would be fulfilled. And the church in Sardis wrote, wake up from your spiritual malaise and walk worthy. And if you continue to walk with me, if you continue to walk worthy... You will be clothed in white garments. Reflecting, we were told, white garments reflect righteous works and deeds. Like participating in Life Options Walk. Like Angel Tree. So, can we start to see the connection that's being made here between the letters to the churches and this this vision that John gets to see this vision of God on his throne, everything that God promised, everything that he said to those churches in seven letters, chapters four and five confirm for us, he'll do exactly that. He'll do what he said he would do. Which made me think back, this goes back, what, like late, late 80s, we did the, the uh, sermon series on Genesis. It was a while back. 
But do you remember, we, we consistently talked about some of the, the big ideas that carried through the book of Genesis. God rewards faith. He keeps his promises. And much of the time, it happens in ways and times that we don't understand. Turns out that the, that's the same story in Revelation. So as this drama, as, the, as this story continues to unfold, there are going to be things about this that we just don't understand. And yet, we can see consistently that God still rewards faith. God still keeps his promises to those who persevere, to those who remain faithful, those who continue to walk in a worthy manner. I pray as we go through this, as our world gets increasingly chaotic, it seems, may we be found faithful in spite of circumstances, in spite of our circumstances. May we continue to develop a heart of worship for the one who is seated on the throne, who all of creation will worship forever and ever. The book of Revelation is intended to be an encouragement for the church, and this is why. This is the God we serve. This is the God we worship. And I pray that we would continue to read it and receive it in the way it's intended, that we would have ears to hear. Do you notice that was in every one of those letters? Come on, people. We need to have ears to hear. Let's see what God is doing here. And let's not forget how this all started with with a promise, with a blessing, that those who read it will be blessed. Those who hear it will be blessed. And God promised it. It'll happen. Let's pray. Lord, I admit I uh, kind of struggled with with this particular chapter. How, how do we begin to understand what is portrayed here? How do we begin to get a, a, a sense uh, for the vision that John showed? I think he struggled with it, and he was seeing it. We're reading about his vision, and we're, we're still struggling with it. But Lord, I pray that we get enough of it, that, that the Spirit reveals enough of it to us to really cause us to have a deeper, grander sense of awe and wonder at who you are. And that there are, there are elements of those seven letters that apply to most churches these days, it seems. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you, you help, help us open our eyes, help us open our ears, that, that we hear and see what issues um, we may be facing and, and um, that as the leadership and as the church, we are aware of the attacks that are coming, may come, will come at some point. Lord, and we pray for your guidance, for your direction um, as we go through these troubled times, and may we keep our eyes fixed on you. May we have these uh, glimpses, these reminders of what John has shown here, of the, the, the grandeur and the, the majesty and the awesome, the literal word of awe, meaning of awesome, the awesome image of God on his throne. Be with us as we go throughout our days and weeks that we continue to seek our own works of righteousness, that we continue to uh, build our resume, so to speak, for our own white garments and our own crowns. And may may we become better, more consistent ambassadors for your love. And we pray that we continue to walk worthy, that we continue to remain faithful because we know the outcome. We know how the story ends. The battle has been won, and we can be on the right side of history. 
thank you for making all of this clear to us, if not necessarily easy for us. In Jesus' name, amen.